Okay, so Udi Ekmo. Hey, welcome, guys. Today we have a really special episode for you. This is uh, Dr. Joe Belezzo, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Zach Shiner. And on the line, I have Stephen Bernard from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Dr. Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much for having me. You know, here in San Diego, we are doing eCPR and ECMO for arresting patients of various etiologies, mostly, and as I think you guys are doing, we're doing eCPR for cardiac arrest, PE, and refractory shock. And, uh, you know, we got in contact with you because I think you right now are at the forefront of implementing ECMO in the arresting patient, especially in the pre-hospital arena, not initiating ECMO in pre-hospital, but sort of starting the process from the time the patient arrests in the field. So what I wanted to do first was see if I could get some information, see if you could provide some insight into how the program developed at the Alfred Hospital from uh, an in-house program to where you are now have your medics in the field retrieving patients on mechanical uh, circulatory devices and then bringing them into your facility. Well, look, several things happened at once a few years ago, and uh, as it as often happens, uh, to bring a program together. One was that we had a lot of swine flu down here in Australia in about 2008. And at that time, what our intensive care unit did was uh, get the uh, attending intensive care specialist to be trained up in ECMO management. So that's inserting the cannula and running the circuit uh, with the nurses. And it was a very successful program. We had a lot of swine flu here and we did a lot of VV ECMO. In parallel with that, I'm fortunate that the hospital I'm at is our centre for heart transplantation. And increasingly, we started to use VA ECMO as a bridge to uh, left ventricular assist device and subsequent heart transplant and also uh, for post cardiac transplant support. So our centre was actually getting a lot of ECMO experience. Then about four years ago, I went to a therapeutic hypothermia meeting in Japan and there were a, uh, a couple of presentations uh, that I found staggering that, of course, the Japanese have a different pre, pre-hospital system, but mm. they, uh, they did seem to be getting a, a reasonable number of survivors with ECMO applied during CPR in their emergency department. And I guess it was a matter of putting all of this together uh, and coming home and, uh, of course, this is a very much a, a group effort, uh, but getting the key players together and putting together a program that we thought gave a patient the best possible chance of survival. So the elements became, well... We know mechanical CPR in the, in the big trials hasn't shown to be superior to excellent chest compressions, but mm. what it certainly does allow you is uh, for paramedics to transport uh, safely and quickly. Secondly, with mechanical CPR, I, I, if you've used it, you'll, you'll all know that once it's applied, it really creates a sense of calm and uh, and purpose in the emergency room and it's possible therefore to do some things that maybe in the chaos wouldn't have been possible. So mechanical CPR I think personally is essential. Uh, it is possible to get by without it but I think it's it's really uh, adds a lot. The second thing was of course you might be aware my long interest in therapeutic hypothermia and uh, 
quite a number of clinical trials, but sure, I've always been convinced uh, with all the animal data that supports the idea that cooling during CPR is uh, where we've got to get. That's where the animal studies show clear benefit and, you know, perhaps a, a slightly different subject of post-arrest cooling, but I was very keen to see peri-arrest cooling and right now the easiest and best way to do that is to give uh, about two to three litres of ice saline during CPR. Our team uh, trained ourselves up to do cannula insertion percutaneously during chest compressions and I, I can tell you that it's not easy. The guys I'm with, I've got some, we've got some real top guns at our uh, institution for getting a needle and a, and a guide wire into any blood vessel uh, during chest compressions, but it does take a fair bit of experience. So uh, we adopted a small cannula, a low-flow approach, just to, just to get those cannulas in or cannulae in. And finally, of course, then the patient is arrested for a reason and we engaged our card, interventional cardiologist to say, well, okay, we've now got a patient who's still in VF, maybe now is in asystole, but they arrested for a reason. Let's take them to the cath lab on ECMO. And then uh, if they've got, for example, you know, a, a lesion that uh, they can stent, then that will be good. And then we'd like to see the heart start. Through all of this, keeping the patient 32 degrees, 33 degrees, and then see how they go. Uh, so that's the out-of-hospital uh, we started with the idea that, well, it's going to out of hospital program, but although we don't see a lot of codes in the hospital, uh, we have a very strong medical emergency team system. Over the, over the last couple of years, in fact, we have had slightly more in-hospital uh, arrests. So our uh, total numbers are just a few more there in hospital than out of hospital. So that's the program, and we called it CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, the CPR to hospital, or mechanical CPR, the hypothermia, uh, the ECMO, and then the uh, emergency reperfusion being the cath lab, or we've had a couple of patients with massive PE, uh, then uh, thrombolysis. Yeah, so that's a fantastic outline of, of all the things that I wanted to try and hit on today. For your information, we are probably doing things nearly identical to you with just the caveat that we have ER doctors doing the cannulation. But aside from that, all the other things you're talking about, mechanical circulatory device, we use the Lucas II uh, just uh, by way of that's what we have. Uh, we do intro rest cooling and all the things that you talked about. But I wanted to jump back and maybe talk about some of these individual components because they're really fascinating. Uh, and so the first one is this, it looks like you've sort of reconstructed your chain of survival in the pre-hospital setting by supplying your guys with autopulses. And that is a game changer, right? That is the thing that's letting medics now take patients that where, you know, the termination of resuscitation guidelines, the TOR guidelines were saying, and you've mentioned this in the past, that the ER has not much more to offer than what medics could do in the past until this day, until the point when we can do eCPR either in the ER or in the intensive care unit or in the ER by intensivists, either way, uh, that changes things. And a key component of that is the mechanical chest compression device. 
And I thought, you looks like you use both the Lucas 2 and the Autopulse, Lucas 2 in hospital and Autopulse out. And I want to get your thought on the mechanical chest compression devices. Yeah, well, uh, we did introduce the uh, Autopulse about six, seven years ago in rural Victoria. Uh, we have a single ambulance service that sort of supplies uh, a state about the size of Texas, but we've only got one really big city. We thought the rural guys, often there's a, a shortage of skilled hands, and when the uh, Autopulse came onto the market, our, our ambulance service bought four of them to see uh, if they were uh, useful. In the end, we, we thought probably not. Uh, but when this idea of transport to hospital came back, well, we dusted them off out of the cupboard mm-hmm. and uh, put them onto our trucks in the, in the metro. Yeah. The Alfred Hospital is very much in the centre of the city of Melbourne. So we put them on some trucks uh, mm-hmm. right around the Alfred. I, I might say, uh, and here I should say uh, with gratitude, that Zoll heard about this program and donated to us a further 10 machines, and we were very grateful for that. So we've got 14 machines now. The setting is very important. Our EMS is a little different from that in the US. It's, not, it's got some physician oversight in the sense of advice, but they all run by uh, guidelines in the field. Mm. Um, and for the last, uh, well, really 25 years, we've had rules about stopping in the field, stopping resuscitation, and we uh, have always had the idea that if you have had full advanced life support in the field, intubation, all the drugs, then there was no point going to hospital, and so we had termination in the field rules, even for shockable rhythm, Mm -hmm. but if you couldn't get uh, a return of spontaneous circulation, then... Uh, up until uh, recently, yep, you would uh, call it in the field. What we have now is uh, the idea that that selected patients could be transported. And what we've done is for a pilot program, we wanted to enrol people we thought had a reasonable prospect of survival. And that's why we've got a limitation of first rhythm has to be VFib. We've got age criteria. Uh, we uh, thought we should get started in the younger folk mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a couple of other criteria that are in our indications and exclusions, uh, essentially uh, to give people who have some prospect of return to good independent living a go. So uh, that was the group that we started with first. We've since broadened it a little. Uh, we initially were age under 60. We've extended that out to 70. I guess as some of us are approaching 60, we <laughs> wanted to see... Uh, we, we didn't want to exclude ourselves from our own program. Of course. <laughs> uh, but plus having got some, some real wins in the, you know, the 40 to 50 age group, you, you sort of want to extend your program uh, yeah. a little bit. But I think age is important. I find it very hard to believe that a 70s, 80s-year-old is going to survive 100 minutes of chest compressions. Yeah. Uh, it might be possible in the future, but it's not probably right now. But I think the 40s, 50s and, and a fit 60-year-old, you can probably get away with uh, 60 to 80 minutes of chest compressions. Uh, we have had some survivors, though, even at the 75 range, which has been quite amazing despite prolonged CPR. So Yeah, that's, that's true, uh, although Dr. Bernard's point is well made that yeah. especially early on Absolutely. in a program, your goal should be to narrow that down to the younger folks, the ones that have a chance of survival. Because, And as you know, 
Dr. Bernard, it's, uh, having some success up front uh, really drives a wave of enthusiasm as opposed to a spirit of nihilism that can occur if you have your first three or four patients don't, don't do well. Absolutely. Uh, and I think we were very lucky. We uh, got a couple of uh, people over the line early on. And uh, it's fair to say that, like any program like this, there was a, a, a reasonable fear that we would just end up with someone... Uh, on ECMO, but uh, with no, you know, no, prog- no reasonable prognosis. And, and look, fair to say, we're talking about a very high resource intervention here, mm. which is only, of course, possible in, you know, first world countries like uh, Australia, the US and Europe. So, Dr. Bernard, before we leave this, because uh, I know we're going to go on to a lot of other things here, but I am in total agreement about the chaos reduction plan of the mechanical chest compressors, and I am still a believer in pre-hospital cooling, uh, even though I, both of these things or the trials are not working quite as we would plan. The third thing, though, that you had said there was about these small cannula, and this is something where it's different than what we do. We tend to use these bigger cannula, 19 French, and you made the point of saying that you thought that that was easier to place. And I'm, and I'm trying to get more as educational for us because I actually would love to go to this smaller cannula technique. But I, I feel like our biggest problem is getting that wire in. Once we get the wire in, uh, dilating it up is probably lesser of a challenge for us. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, well, look... Uh you're right. Getting that wire in and correctly placed is uh, is critical. Uh, what we do now is, uh, and I think you will have seen in our latest protocol, which is version 13, mm-hmm. is we, we have clearly designated roles and there's two cannulators who are going to be placing the, the two wires. Uh, one of the other roles is someone to the left of the patient with an ultrasound machine uh, with the uh, probe over the inferior vena cava and reassuring us that there's one wire in the inferior vena cava. Ideally, also looking for, if you can see the aorta, well, you know, that'll be good. That's sometimes a little difficult in a, a more obese patient or if there's a lot of gas in the abdomen, but um, in the stomach. So there are three key roles and look, I would say that uh, we now routinely cannulate using ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for many of us, we used to put uh, femoral vein lines in just, uh, you know, just a bit medial to the pulse. Uh, in this situation, that's not going to be a happening thing. So the pulse you feel could easily be the vein. We're, we're all getting experience now in imaging the vessels, hitting it with the needle, feeding the guide wire up, checking that it's there in the right spot and then dilating up and look, you know, the ideal flow rate you're going to need from your ECMO circuits only going to really need to be three litres a minute and a small return catheter is, uh, cannula is easier to get into it. Some of the arteries are, you know, they're hard to dilate up and get mm-hmm. current cannulas there. Uh, a 15 usually goes in pretty well. Uh, you can put a bigger venous cannula in, a multi-flow. We'd use a 19 now rather than a 17 because mm. generally the vein's pretty easy to access. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you'll remember we've given a, a, a lot of fluid for cooling right at this point. So we've generally got a good-sized vein to shoot for. Mm-hmm. Uh, a multi-flow, that's enough to get us over the line to the cath lab. It might be down the track we need something a little larger, but in fact... 
we seem to have two clear outcomes here. One is the heart starts up, patient wakes up, a good outcome, or the whole thing is, uh, is really going badly. I must say you tend to see that early. You see a lot of coagulopathy, uh, no neurologic recovery whatsoever. So, you know, I, I think the ones that haven't survived, we've, we've tended to uh, be able to call that early. Yeah. So we haven't needed to to think about up, upsizing our cannulas. So I think in this situation, I, I'm pretty keen on a small arterial cannula, but the venous one can be a little bit larger. It can be a 19 French multi-flow. Uh, let me take one step back, though, so we can understand the logistics. So a patient's coming into the ER with an autopulse on. They get transferred into your ER onto, their gurney, onto the gurney, and then you have a doctor, sounds like a doctor sort of running the code, and you have two cannulators. Now, are those... Is it one guy, one cannulator going after the vessel, the other as an assistant, or are you guys working on each side trying to get the right vein, it looks like, and the left-sided artery? Is that is that what you guys are doing? Yeah, look, perhaps just before more detail on that, I, I yeah. would emphasize, and we've, the version 13 that I've sent to you now has, I think it's 10 clear roles. And, of course, you've got to run the uh, cardiac arrest. So we have a team leader, we have uh, a physician, who's looking after the airway, uh, you can't put the patient on a ventilator with a mechanical CPR. It just doesn't tend to, uh, it, it tends to overventilate. So we uh, have someone ventilating by obviously endotracheal tube, but uh, gently, uh, we mm-hmm. strong uh, proponents in, we don't want to have the CO2 too low. From the ECMO CPR perspective, the, there's a main cannulators uh, on the right side of the patient. Uh, mm-hmm. As it turns out, all all sixteen of us at the Alfred who cannulate are right-handed. Uh, so that person is primarily responsible for hitting the vessel, feeding the guide wire up. The assistant standing on the left side of the patient is really to assist with the feeding the guide wire, then feeding cannulas, uh, passing little bits of gear. Um, right from the get-go, though, we have all our kit on a big trolley all in box one, box two. One of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Richard Lynn, really came up with this idea. So when the patient comes through the door, in fact, it is seamless. We open box one, that's the big, uh, uh, it's, it's a big pack with a, a huge drape, all the prep, etc. Box two's got the cannulas in it, that opens up. So the team basically gather around the patient and it's very quiet. Uh, everyone knows exactly what they're going to do. No one's allowed to speak up loudly, uh, call out. It's really got to have – this is a pretty high-stress effort. Mm-hmm. So we we have uh, cannulator one, prep and drape, and then the gear will be handed to him, the needle, the guide wire, uh, and then uh, the ultrasound probe will be handed over, uh, which, of course, is sterile, uh, sterile cover on it and immediately gets going with visualizing the vessels and and getting going. Um, So cannulator one is going to do the cannulation. Cannulator two to the patient's left is the assistant. And your your cannulator one is going after the – because according to the guidelines, it looks like the venous – at least you're trying to get a venous line on the right and arterial line on the left, or are you getting what you get? So you go in and whatever you get, you grab that, and then you do the other one next. Yeah, look, you have a look, and uh, if per chance there's a bigger vein on one side or a bigger artery, well, you'll change, but mm. the idea is the venous one on the right, we are told by our vascular surgeons, it just get, you can get slightly better flow, it just doesn't 
hook under the artery, uh, mm. uh, the aorta or the iliacs uh, mm. quite as much. So the, you know, maybe we're not too fast, but we tend to put a venous wire up the, uh, the right side first and then go over to the left leg and place this, the short arterial catheter uh, on that side if things look equivalent on both sides. And does the second cannulator, the guy on the patient's left side, is that the one that does the left side, or does the cannulator one reach over? Yeah, no, cannulator one will be doing it because, mm. as I say, we're right-handed. Yeah. And look, we're, you know, it might be that someone who's right-handed can cannulate from the left. Just we've all been trained ourselves to cannulate from the right. We just reach over a bit. So that's just the way that uh, all of us think is the. Uh, easiest way to go yeah interesting and you guys don't why, why not put the artery and the vein on the same side well you're going to get leg problems probably mm-hmm. it, it's it's okay but if you've got a significantly decreased arterial flow and a big catheter in the vein on the same side you know leg ischemia is is a problem and uh that's uh, probably going to make uh make your problems worse so if possible we we go all um one on each side. Interesting. And then it sounds like what you're doing is tossing in the guide wire into the vein, guide wire into the artery, but you don't dilate yet. You first then have the ultrasonographer confirm at least you have one wire in the IVC. If you can see the aorta, fine. But if you can't, you, you sort of assume it's not in the IVC if you're not seeing the second wire in the IVC. Is that right? That's right. But if you were to cannulate first, the, you know, put a big venous cannula up, it's going to be hard to see that wire in the vein. Uh, so... We'd like to get the wires in first and then uh, proceed on to dilating. That's a great tip because we've been putting the wire in and then dilating immediately and then you clamp that vessel and that vessel ends up staying clamped with a clot inside of it while you're trying to get the other vessel. I think it's probably much better to just put the guide wires in, confirm their presence with ultrasound, and then dilate to both at the same time. That's a pretty cool tip right there. Yeah. Question for you. You get a patient who comes in, you put them on ECMO, uh, you're a presumed cardiac arrest, and you have a post-ECMO EKG that shows sinus rhythm with no STEMI. Are your cardiologists taking those to the cath lab? Yeah, so they were a V-fib arrest in the field. As you yeah. all, I'm sure you know, the uh, EKG, we call it ECG yeah. here, EKG is uh, you know not entirely sensitive and specific for uh, an acute coronary artery occlusion, so... Uh, we've certainly got our cardiologists on board to say, well, yep, in this particular circumstance, we'll take the patient to the cath lab and uh, do a coronary angiogram. It's fair to say that our routine post-arrest, we normally don't take these patients to the cath lab on every occasion unless they've got a STEMI or shock. Uh, but this particular group, we'd be pretty confident there's going to be an acute coronary artery occlusion the exception is, and we've had a few of these, are the quite young patients in their 20s who are, in fact, known to have a, either a cardiomyopathy or a. Uh, there's been a couple that have been worked up previously for uh, V-fib arrests and who have uh, defibrillators inserted. In that group, we know well they've just uh, they've got something uh, like a channelopathy. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a battle that we're currently fighting right now with our cardiologists to some degree, and we're trying to convince them that the out of hospital arrest VF arrest ECMO patient is really a, a whole different creature than than ones who don't get put on ECMO, and they're probably a special case, and they should probably be taken to the cath lab. But we're we're still fighting that battle as well over here. Yeah, look, I've got to say we've had great support from our interventional cardiologists here. Uh, 
it is a big deal, especially out of ours in our city, to uh, open a cath lab. And uh, uh, but you know, these are generally they're young. Uh, they did go into VFib for a reason. We've got to sort it out. And if they did have a uh, block of their LAD, you couldn't really leave them for the night. All right. So, Dr. Bernard, I mean, this is Joe and I are just so honored to be able to come and talk to you. Um, this is fantastic. So the CHEER trial, we've seen some of your preliminary data on it. We've seen some pretty remarkable arrests and survivors that you've had. What are some updates on that? So we've just had a paper uh, of our preliminary report of 26 patients uh, accepted by resuscitation, and that'll be uh, online, I would have thought, in the next few weeks. So people might look for that for some more detail. But our first 26 patients, uh, we got... For the in-hospital arrests, uh, we had 15 patients out of the 26, and nine of those got home, so that's uh, 64%. Um, And they got home CPC1. They didn't go to rehab. They actually walked out of the hospital. And of the out-of-hospital arrests, which obviously a bit more challenging, we had 11 patients, and five of those walked out. So that's 36%. So, uh, you know, clearly uh, the in-hospital group are doing better, but... You know, to get uh, over a third of the out-of-hospital patients over the line, uh, when you think of the actual numbers in the out-of-hospital setting that are potentially able to benefit from this, we think it's a very exciting program and uh, uh, we know that some others in the world are getting sort of 15s to 25% and, you know, I, I think they'll this sort of program can improve uh, earlier transport to hospital, uh, a few other tweaks to the program. If we can end up about 40, 45%, I think that will be a lot of lives saved each year in a major uh, metro area. Yeah, I mean, that is just absolutely fantastic. Now, one clarification there. When you're saying in-hospital arrest, does that include patients that have in-ED arrest, in-ER arrests? Yeah, that's right. We're calling uh, in-ED uh, uh, which most of them were, most of the 15. We've had one in the cath lab and a couple in the ICU. Uh, but, yeah, they're, they're regarded as in hospital um, if their re- arrest is refractory. Now, I, I'd stress that these are all eCPR, but the ELSO definition includes anyone who may have arrested and who now has shock. We haven't included those in, the, in those numbers. We, we have a pretty high success rate with that group. But that's not here. So we've got a pretty... These patients are in refractory arrest. They're having chest compressions as the cannulas go in. Yeah, so I I think a lot of this is about definition, and and you nailed it. I think cardiogenic shock is going to be maybe the biggest benefit for eCPR when we finally get all this data. But one of the clarifications, and this sort of speaks to this idea of in in ED arrest, you are taking these refractory V-fib patients, or at least a subset of them, putting them on the Lucas or the Autopulse and taking them to the cath lab. Is that correct? That's right. And so you, in those types of patients, you are foregoing eCPR in light of um, trying to reperfuse their coronaries. Oh, sorry, we better step back a bit. Uh, we're putting them on eCPR. Right now, we've got uh, a Lucas 2 has just arrived. Um, it was donated by a benefactor to the Alfred Hospital. We've been impressed by quite a number of uh, case reports that that cardiologists can do interventional work while the Lucas II is running. Uh, 
-hmm. And what our new protocol says is if the patient was sitting up and about to go to the cath lab, the cath lab is open and they weren't in shock, but now they're refractory V-fib, we plan to take those to the cath lab immediately on the Lucas and let the cardiologist do their cath whilst we set up the, the ECMO uh, in the cath lab. If perchance the heart starts up straight away once the artery is opened and the patient's looking good, we'd give them a little bit of, you know, a few minutes to declare themselves. But we would prepare to go on to ECMO either for refractory arrest or for shock. But I'd say to you that this is uh, really just a development that we, we haven't actually done this yet at the Alfred. We know another hospital in our city has uh, got a case that they did and had a successful outcome. The alternate approach would be to go on to ECMO in the emergency department, but you've got the cath lab set up. It's going to be a half an hour. Uh, cath lab's waiting. On balance, we think for that particular group, the idea of going to the cath lab on the uh, Lucas 2 and having your cath as the first step whilst our team assemble outside the cath lab, we think that will be the way to go in the future. But as I say, it's written into our protocol. We haven't had to do that yet. Hey, as a side, let me just give you a uh, another personal experience with the Lucas because we just got this and we've used it probably a handful of times in arrests and I had a guy the other day who was 57 year old, years old with a witness arrest who went into asystole. And because he was put on the Lucas and throughout had an end tidal CO2 of above 50, pink with reactive pupils, we worked him for an hour and a half with cannulas in. We never put him on pump because he was echocardiographic asystole. And there was just nothing there. But to imagine to be able to have a chest compression device that can give you that kind of perfusion is pretty remarkable. So we're, at least with a short end value that we have at our facility, we're pretty, we're pretty much big fans of the Lucas. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, look, uh, I, I, I must admit uh, uh, the Lucas versus Autopulse uh, story is uh, one that I, I really don't want to get into. I, I would say that not that I'm, um, uh, in, in, I haven't mm-hmm. received any sort of uh, benefits from either company, but... Uh, Zoll have been uh, very good, obviously, donating all the autopulse. Uh, the Lucas 2, I, I have to say, I think in the cath lab, our cardiologists are saying it's just easier to do a cath mm. um, or it looks like it would be easier. Uh, we've, I, I've only had that experience once, not at the Alfred, but one of the uh, other facilities that I work, we have done a cath during the uh, Lucas 2 and the cardiologist who had never done this before was very, very happy with the way it went. The Zoll people tell me, look, it's possible to do a, a cath with an autopulse, but, uh, you know, but leave that to our cardiologists. Uh, right at the moment, I think the Lucas 2, it's easier for the cardiologist, uh, but I don't want to say the autopulse is also a great piece of kit, so I've got to sort of really, uh, um, you know... Uh, <laughs> Not, not, not to one way or the other, really, on a, in public. Yeah, no, we understand. That's, of, of course. Hey, listen, we're running near the end of our time frame here. And being that we're on the line right now with probably one of the key figures in hypothermia, I've got to ask you. So you get a guy on ECMO and uh, arrest on ECMO, VF on re- uh, that arrests, put him on ECMO. You take him to the cath lab. What are you cooling him to? And, and what are your thought processes of that in comparison to the 36 degrees Nielsen stuff? Yeah, look, I've got a pretty uh, clear approach to this. Uh, the post-arrest, uh, I've 
you know, published an opinion piece uh, in the British Medical Journal a couple of months ago. Uh, uh, I'm impressed by the TTM study. Uh, I think it was a great study. I think the result was clear. And uh, for our routine post-arrests at our facility now, our guideline targets 36 degrees. Uh, I think that's the best evidence that we have in front of us. The peri-arrest cooling, uh, I would tell you, we're just finishing in the city of uh, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth. We're just finishing our peri-arrest out-of-hospital cooling trial. Half those patients allocated to bolus ice saline uh, during chest compressions. So we hope to present that data at a meeting early next year. But for this particular group, very long cardiac arrest time, easy to uh, infuse mm -hmm. uh, two to three litres of ice saline, uh, ticks every box for me for could benefit, can't see how it can do any harm. Uh, so I'm cooling the patients down during the eCPR process. And on the basis of that, I would keep them at 32, 33 degrees for 24 hours and then the slow rewarming strategy. So... Yep, I've gone to 36 degrees for a post-arrest, but the peri-arrest cooling in this particular group, uh, we're, we're pretty enthusiastic about. And so 24 hours, 32, 33, uh, slow rewarming, just like the uh, previous protocol that we had. Yeah, not a better way to end the podcast than that right there. Dr. Bernard, we can't thank you enough. Absolutely amazing. Thank yep. you. Well, thanks, guys, for your interest. Uh, happy to help. Yep, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.